Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 38, Same But Different, to discover why elements' atomic weights were often not whole numbers. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. We go back to our gullible old pal William Crookes of Crookes Tube fame in 1900. He was still doing research, having jumped on the radioactivity bandwagon. One perplexing observation he made in this new radioactivity fad is that fresh purified uranium compounds had a low level of radioactivity, but letting these chemicals sit for a while actually increased their rate of radioactivity. Chemically, he was able to precipitate out from solution the more radioactive salt. That seemed really odd. The English chemist Frederick Soddy, who was at McGill University in Montreal with Ernest Rutherford, and researching radioactive thorium at this time, figured out the explanation by 1902. Uranium, being radioactive, gives off alpha particles. At this time, no one knew what alpha particles really were, but we now understand them to be two neutrons and two protons all stuck together, a helium nucleus. But, even so... Sadi realized that a uranium atom ejecting an alpha particle lost a significant amount of mass. Therefore, the uranium atom, after tossing away an alpha particle, was no longer a uranium atom. It became a different type of atom, one with far stronger radioactivity. Then, with stronger radioactivity, this second atom ejected a particle turning into a new type of atom. This whole transformation of an atom from one element to the next kept going in a series of changes, becoming new radioactive elements in the process. Eventually, the radioactivity series ended when the atom transformed itself into lead, which is not radioactive. For uranium decay, the process is measurable and predictable. Initially, the precise nature of elements in the decay series wasn't clear, so the radioactive series went something like Uranium ejects an alpha particle and turns into uranium X1, then ejects a beta particle and becomes uranium X2, then emits another beta particle and becomes uranium again. This new form of uranium emits an alpha particle becoming so-called ionium, which emits an alpha particle to become actual radium metal, the source of radium that the Curies found. Radium then emits another alpha particle to become radon gas, which Ramsey found. This radon emits another alpha particle and turns into radium A, which emits yet another alpha particle to become radium B. Radium B emits a beta particle to become radium C, which also emits a beta particle, becoming radium C prime. Radium C prime ejects an alpha particle and becomes radium D, which emits a beta particle to become radium E. This radium E ejects a beta particle and becomes radium F, also called polonium by the Curies. 
Polonium emits an alpha particle and turns into lead, which is stable and the end of the process. There was another series starting with uranium and a third series starting with thorium. Though I recited a litany of decay, let's think about the importance here. First, this is transmutation of elements. Nature allows elements to change from one to another. The old alchemist's dream isn't quite so off the wall anymore. But we notice that the transmutations are strictly predictable. You're not getting argon or sodium or gold. It's all lead at the end, the basest of base metals. In the early 1900s, this was truly wild and wacky stuff, at least as bizarre as the new quantum theory. It was so bizarre that when Soddy realized what was going on and called out to Rutherford, Rutherford replied, For Christ's sake, Soddy, don't call it transmutation. They'll have our heads off as alchemists. Second, you might say, okay, by Robert Boyle's old definition of an element, elements are only elements if we cannot change them into something else. But by Henry Moseley's scheme in which elementhood is assigned to anything with the same atomic number, or number of positive charges in the nucleus, then uranium is definitely an element. So, yes, uranium is an element, radium is an element, Polonium is an element, and they are all transforming themselves slowly or not so slowly and surely into another element, lead. Recall that Boyle assumed atoms are unchangeable. Right at this time, scientists were realizing that Boyle's old idea wasn't true. The next logical question might be, if these radioactive elements are breaking down spontaneously, why do they exist naturally at all? Why is there any uranium to be found in rocks? Ernest Rutherford figured out the answer in 1904. Radioactive elements decay at specific rates so that, after a specific time, there is only half the number of atoms of that element. After another segment of that time, only half remains of that half. After another bit of time, only half of the half of the half remains. Every element has its own characteristic time of decay, which we call half-life. The half-life is that length of time for half of the atoms to break down. For radium, the half-life is only 1,600 years. For uranium, the half-life is 4.5 billion years. For thorium, the half-life is over 14 billion years. Why do the half-lives differ? It has to do with the stability of the nucleus, and really is outside the scope of this podcast. We also note that we cannot predict which particular atoms will decay when. It's completely random to the best of our measuring ability, and there is nothing any person can do to change an element's radioactive rate. It appears to be perfectly constant. How did early scientists determine half-lives? we go back to good old William Crookes. He noted in 1903 what he saw as a uniform glow from radium bromide on a zinc sulfide screen. Once again, we have the spill factor in science. He spilled by accident some of his radium salt, which was expensive and rare. So he wanted to recover as much as he could. 
He looked at his zinc sulfide screen under a microscope and saw individual flashes from alpha particles hitting the screen. He invented a small metal tube with a screen and lens to magnify the screen and a tiny sample of radioactive material. This he called a spintharoscope, from Greek spinther, spark, or flash. Well, if a radioactive decay rate is constant forever, we can choose a really long radioactive decay, like uranium, and measure the age of the Earth. This is precisely what the American chemist Bertram Boltwood did in 1907. He used the inevitable lead content of uranium mineral as a guide. Assuming that the entire amount of lead in a rock comes from uranium's decay, just compare the amount of lead and uranium to get the age of the rock. He took 10 different rocks from around the world and found that they were between 410 million years old and 2.2 billion years old. These results were truly astonishingly old to the geologists of over a century ago. Refining Boltwood's measurements gives the current estimate of the age as over 4.5 billion years old. Saudi, though, was still working on the theoretical implications of the radioactive decay series. Independently, the Polish, later American, chemist, Kasimir Fajans, followed the same train of thought. Within a few years, they realized the rules, if you like, of how the atoms decayed in terms of atomic number and atomic weight. Rule one is that if the atom loses an alpha particle, which has a plus two charge, that means the nucleus had to lose a plus two charge, which means the atom moves leftward two places on the periodic table. Rule two is that if the atom loses a beta particle, which has a charge of minus one, then the atom gains a plus one charge and moves rightward on the periodic table one space. Rule three is that if the atom emits a gamma or x-ray, which is uncharged, there is no change in position in the periodic table, though the atom does lose energy. I do want to be clearer about the ejection process of a beta particle. When Sadi was codifying these rules, the exact structure of the atom was unclear, and scientists thought maybe there were electrons in the nucleus. We now realize that this idea is false, and that there are only protons and neutrons in the nucleus. But, when a neutron decays into a proton in the nucleus, it ejects an electron, a beta particle. The outcome is the same in both views. Now we have issues with the periodic table. Recall that just one radioactive series from uranium has over a dozen sequential decay products. The general belief is that they were all different elements. Other decay series were of similar complexity. Where do we put all these atoms on our periodic table? Polonium is atomic number 84, and uranium is atomic number 92, with nine spots on the table inclusive. One particular example of a problem is the initial decay of uranium, atomic number 92, ejecting an alpha particle and thus becoming thorium, atomic number 90. Measurements of thorium already taken show thorium's half-life to be 14 billion years. 
But this particular thorium from uranium decay had a half-life of only 24 days. How could there be two thoriums? Or thoria, the Latin plural? So, Sadi suggested that maybe we can cram more than one of these types of atoms into one square on the periodic table. Atomic number 90, thorium, can include some thorium with a half-life of 14 billion years, and some with only 24 days. There might be different types of uranium, lead, and other elements. By this time, in 1913, Sadi was on the faculty at the University of Glasgow in Scotland and was talking about his research to a family friend, the physician Margaret Todd. Dr. Todd offered the name isotope for these different varieties of the same element, from Greek isos, equal, and topos, place. Of course, this was all theoretical, for no one had isolated different types of any element. We now transfer ourselves to Vienna, home of art, music, and science, and we turn to Stephanie Horowitz. Horowitz was born to a Polish-Jewish portrait painter, Leopold. When she was a small child, Leopold moved the family to Vienna. Upon reaching adulthood, Horowitz attended the University of Vienna and got her doctorate in organic chemistry. Given the limited opportunities for women professionals, she was able to be recruited at the Institute for Radium Research by Otto Hönigschmid around 1913. Hönigschmid was already an expert in determining precise atomic weights. Horowitz and Hönigschmid had just heard about this new isotope idea, and one of Sadi's predictions was that lead from radioactive decay had a different atomic weight than regular lead. They started on their research. To get lead, they got tailings, like the Curies, from the played-out uranium and silver mine at St. Joachimsthal. She separated out rocks with extra pitch blend, meaning that lead was more likely to come from radioactive decay in those rocks. The experimental techniques were incredibly demanding. Grinding the pitch blend, then dissolving it in acid to remove the lead chloride, washed, filtered, redissolved, precipitated, redissolved, filtered, and so on, recrystallized ten times, and yet more. According to her paper, Sur le poids atomique du plomb de la pêche blonde, or On the Atomic Weights of Lead from Pitch Blend, published in 1914, regular lead had an atomic weight of 207.190, while lead from the St. Joachimsthal mine, presumably from radioactive ancestry, had an atomic weight of 206. or a difference of 0.4 units between the two. That was significant enough to be the first solid evidence of isotopes. Some historians of science put this report as one of the most important papers between 1900 and 1950. Shortly thereafter, they did more work using ores from German East Africa and Norway, which gave a difference of at least one unit, further supporting the idea of isotopes. A side note on Horowitz. After World War I, she left chemistry and became involved with psychological education of troubled children. Then, when the Nazis marched into Austria in 1938, 
she and all other non-native Jews were sent back to Poland. The Nazis rounded her up with other Jews and other alleged undesirables and sent her to the Treblinka concentration camp where she was murdered in 1942. Around this time, J.J. Thompson, who we recall discovered the electron, was repurposing his Crookes tube so that he could shoot positive ions through a magnetic field. One element's ions he chose was neon. The magnetic field bent the ion's trajectory and, because they were all supposedly the same mass, they should fall on the same spot on his photographic plate. Except that didn't happen. There seemed to be two spots. But it was a crude thingamajig, and World War I interrupted the experiments. At this time, he was working with Francis Astin, who was a wizard with electrical and mechanical gizmos, so Astin improved the apparatus by 1919 and built what most science historians regard as the first mass spectrometer. In it, he showed that neon gas was made primarily of two isotopes, 90% neon-20 and 10% neon-22. If you average out the amounts by weight of the two isotopes, you really get the measured atomic weight for neon-20.2. The point here is that an atomic weight is a weighted average of all the isotopes in your sample. Each isotope has a whole number atomic weight. These average atomic weights we see on a periodic table don't have to be integers. And, in a way, Prout's hypothesis of a hundred years earlier was kind of right. All elements are made of hydrogen or, more accurately, made of nucleons, each of which has an atomic weight of one hydrogen atom. Even more interesting, this average atomic weight for an element can be higher than the next element in the periodic table. So, with tellurium, we have seven isotopes. The heaviest ones are tellurium-126 and tellurium-128, and these also occur most often. So the weighted average atomic weight for tellurium is 127.6. Yet the next element in the periodic table is iodine, with only a single isotope, iodine-127. So, by Mendeleev's idea of placing the elements partly by atomic weight and partly by other properties, tellurium comes before iodine. With good enough mass spectrometry, you are measuring quite accurately the atomic weights of atoms directly. So this is a method now better than chemical separations as Horowitz did. The mass spectrometer is now a common laboratory technique used to measure entire molecules and their molecular weights. By the early 1930s, the nuclear particles were understood, so scientists were finally able to explain exactly what the difference was between isotopes. Because every element has a unique number of protons in its atoms, the difference in mass between isotopes of the same element had to be based solely on neutrons. For the example of neon, in which scientists later found a third, rarer isotope, neon-21, the nuclei are as follows. Neon-20 has 10 protons and 10 neutrons in its nucleus. Neon-21 has 10 protons and 11 neutrons in its nucleus. And neon-22 has 10 protons and 12 neutrons in its nucleus. 
For uranium, a basic element of our story, the Canadian-American physicist Arthur Dempster found in 1935 that there were two isotopes. 99.3% of uranium was made of uranium-238, while 0.7% of uranium was uranium-235, which has three fewer neutrons. Within a few years, the atomic bomb was produced, but that required uranium-235. The problem we, or the allies in World War II, have is how to separate isotopes when they are so similar chemically, because they are the same element, but with a very slightly different weight. Also, radioactive isotopes may have different radioactive half-lives solely because of the difference in neutrons. Uranium-238 has a half-life of 4.5 billion years, but uranium-235 has a half-life of 700 million years. Each isotope has a different way of decaying to lead, that is, a different radioactive series. How about the lightest element, hydrogen? Did it have isotopes? In 1931, American chemist Harold Urey used the very slight difference in assumed physical properties to isolate them. He took 4 liters of liquid hydrogen, which we remember is diatomic, H2, and molecular weight 2, and very slowly evaporated it. The belief was that a heavier isotope of hydrogen, molecular weight 4, would boil at a higher temperature, and thus boil off more slowly, staying in the vessel, while the lighter isotope of molecular weight 2 would leave more quickly. And he did find this heavier isotope in the last milliliter of liquid hydrogen. The new heavier isotope of mass 2 is often called heavy hydrogen and has its own name, deuterium. In our next episode, we return to the unhappy topic of chemical warfare, this time in the 20th century. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.